Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Good morning again, everyone. The last time I was here, in January, I was really, really sick when I preached. And I think you noticed that. But thanks be to God, He heals. And He brings us to the point where He needs us to be. So I'm back. So this morning, we're going to continue in Romans. We're going to move on to chapter 3, and we're going to talk about a topic that a lot of churches don't want to talk about today. We're going to talk about sin. We're going to talk about our sin. We're going to talk about the sin of others and our sinful nature and how it's detrimental to our relationship to Jesus Christ. But again, thanks be to God to know when we have that relationship with Christ, all things are possible. So this morning, Romans chapter 3, we're going to go through 1 through 18, and you might say, well, wait a minute. We're used to going through two words with Pastor Martin. Well, we're going to go through 18 verses today, so everyone buckle up, all right? An old man had his wallet stolen while he was on a bus, and when he realized, he started warning everyone, whoever stole my wallet better give it back to me. Or the same thing's going to happen as it did in 1983. And I'll repeat it over and over and over again until I get that wallet back. The old man kept ranting this warning every minute until the bus got to the next city. And a young man jumped off the bus, threw the wallet through the window, and started running away. The old man picked up the wallet. Stunned by the incident, a small kid walked to that old man and asked, What happened in 1983? The old man said, In 1983, someone stole my wallet, and I had to go hungry for three days. Perspective. Scared the living daylights out of that kid. But what he didn't know is the old man went hungry. He didn't get in trouble. He didn't go after the individual that stole the wallet, but he was in trouble because of the actions of another. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that you may just be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judge. Verse 5, but in our unrighteousness, demonstrates the righteousness of God. What shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? Of course, I speak as a man. He says, certainly not, for then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my life, through his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do every evil that good may come? As we are slanderous reported, as some affirm that we say, their condemnation 
is just. Verse 9, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So Paul here is continuing to argue that the Jews are the same as anyone else when it comes to the issues of sin and unrighteousness. And this is the progression of the message I present to you today. We need to know about the advantage and disadvantage of the Jew, the righteousness of God, and of course, the sinfulness of all mankind. So let's dig into verses 1 through 4 just a little bit. As Paul begins by asking and then answering his own question when he says, what advantage then has the Jew or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. The Jews were blessed beyond belief because they had entrusted within the word of God that they took this responsibility very seriously. They had a a group that were known as the scribes. And the scribes' chief responsibility was to copy, translate, and protect the scriptures. Most of them may have been priests, but in the, in the day of Christ, they were often associated with both the Pharisees and the high priests. So the responsibility of the scribes was to translate these biblical texts, and they quickly became the authorities on what the scripture said, and what it was supposed to mean. So it was basically our modern day uh, book, on, book for dummies, the Bible for dummies. We were able to go to these individuals and they were able to tell us what the Bible said. Okay? So Jesus said to them in Matthew 23, verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy And faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So, in other words, here, they were people who were more preoccupied with the little things than they were with the major doctrines of the faith. In the news a few years ago, there was a couple whose baby had starved to death, and when the authorities had searched their home, they found several thousand dollars. When they were asked, why didn't you buy some baby food? They answered, that money was our tithe. You see, they had majored in the minors. They didn't pay attention to the little details. The Jews were not only the keepers of the Old Testament, but many of them were the believers in the early church. So Paul says that the Jews were blessed because they were circumcised, not that they indicated they were part of God's people, And had been guardians of the word of God. 
Mark 12, 37, it says of Jesus, the common people heard him gladly. And of course, the common people were all Jewish then. When the church began in the book of Acts, the early church was almost entirely Jews. We see this in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit was poured out onto the disciples. And the miracle had occurred there and it attracted the attention of the Jews. And they had been in Jerusalem for their festival and had come from all over the known world. They came running when they heard the sound of the Holy Spirit. And the number of Jewish converts that day was 3,000. Can you imagine having a church service on Sunday and have over 3,000 saved in one day? What a sight that must have been. And then in chapter 4, the number of Jewish converts was 5,000. So it continued to increase. Chapter 5 says they were increasingly added to the Lord, and all these were Jews. As a matter of fact, for over three years, the gospel went throughout Jerusalem and Judea before it ever went to the Gentiles. And don't forget, Jesus was Jewish, so all 12 of his disciples were also Jewish. So as time went on, God used various people and means to reach out beyond the Jews and the Gentiles, and they were accepted in the church the same as the Jews. So there was no difference between the two. Though during that time, that was a very widely popular idea that Jews were separated from Gentile. But that's not the case. Just like we as saved are no different from the unsaved. Let me, let me clarify that though. We are saved by what? Praising Christ. So the opposite would be they don't know Christ. Okay? That's the difference here. But these individuals both knew Christ, so there's no difference. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. They weren't brothers that were Jewish. They weren't brothers that were Gentiles. They were brothers in Christ. Now, of course, Jesus was the first to reach the Gentiles. He spoke to a Samaritan woman in Sychar about her salvation. And although she tried to change the subject by speaking about the correct place to worship, Jesus answered her plainly and said, You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. So he not only saved her that day, he also clarified that the Jews were God's first choice. Does that mean that she was any less important to him? No. Just like you are not any less important than this person or that person. Not only are we tied together by Christ, but we are also tied together by our sin. Because we're all sinners, amen? Amen. So we are connected in that regard. But what do we do with that sin? How do we purge ourselves from that sin? It's having that relationship with Jesus Christ. It's knowing that he can save anyone at any time, at any place, for whatever means to him be the glory. That's what he's trying to convey here. And see, one of the absurdities of our day is the various groups who claim they're Christians, but they hate the Jews. How can anyone who claims to have faith in Jesus Christ say they hate the Jews when their Savior is a Jew? Not only that, but God's word has come through the Jews. The end of verse 2 says, Unto them were committed the oracles of God. 
The oracles were the spoken and written words of God. Without the Jews, we would have neither the Old nor the New Testament. Because God not only used them to write it, but he also used them to keep it safe all throughout history. On top of that, many of God's gifts have come to us from the Jews. Besides the gifts of salvation and the word of God, Paul speaks in Romans chapter 9, and he says Israel was given the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the law, the service of God, the promises, and the fathers. And even though God gave all these things specifically to them, we have been the beneficiaries as well. There is a teaching going around that the Old Testament is over and done with and that we who believe the New Testament are New Testament believers. Well, many of you know that I graduate from seminary in about a month and a half with an Old Testament um, emphasis. So I will tell you that the Old Testament is not dead. It is nearly the beginning and it is the explanation of what's to come in the New Testament. The New Testament teaches us that we're sinners, but it doesn't explain where sin comes from. Daniel, Zephaniah, Malachi, they all give us pieces of prophecy. But the Gospels and the book of the Revelation make them clear. So the books of Proverbs and Job give us wisdom by which we understand life. And much of Israel's history teaches us that we were to ignore God, and it is the pathway to destruction. When we ignore God, we implode. We're seeing it rampant in our country. Those who do not put Christ first, everything implodes. Now, when I was a young Christian, someone quoted Augustine who said, the new is in the old concealed, the old is the new revealed. Scripture is not meant to be approached like a television series. I like season one much better than season two. But the prophecies of the birth, death, and resurrection of the Messiah were all written in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New Testament. So all scripture, all scripture, not just some of it, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. As a whole, we believe this. And yet, there are people in our church who will read everything but the Bible and they can tell you the names of everyone on every TV show. And a few of them can even name all the, the players on every professional sports team. But they couldn't find the book of Lamentations if there was money on the line. And that's truth. Priorities need to come into play here. I'm sure many of you could probably raise your hand and tell me all the characters on... I, I, I better not predate myself here. How about MASH? How about, uh, you know, some of those others? But I bet you could sit here and tell me all those. And I'm sure most of you could tell me where Lamentations is. But I bet you there's some that cannot. So does that make you a horrible person? Absolutely not. And I would never call you out on that. But what God is trying to reveal here is through our sinfulness, it clouds our judgment. It clouds what's important. It clouds what our priorities should be. 
R.C. Sproul addresses the question of why we don't study the Word of God. He says, here then is the real problem of our negligence. We fail in our duty to study God's Word, not so much because it is difficult to understand, and not so much because it is dull and boring, but because it is work. Reading the Bible is work. It's a blueprint to build something. The Bible is blueprints to build something. It is building your relationship to Jesus Christ. It is building relationships to those around you so that when God presents you the opportunity, you can effectively minister to that person. Whatever the issue may be. And then sometimes God is so great, He even puts you in a situation that you don't understand. But somehow He speaks through you when you allow Him to. And that other person or group or whoever it may be gets that benefit. They get to witness God through you. And then it may be an hour or a day or a week or sometimes years later. You get to see the benefit of that. You get to see the benefit of allowing God to do what he does best. And that's work through his people. But it's work. It is. It is work. And that's why people get lazy. They don't read. How do we know how to build something unless we know how to do it? We've got to read. We've got to know what we're doing here. We need to know what God is asking us to do. As an old evangelist used to say, read it through, write it down, pray it in, work it out, and then pass it on. And I know many of you have heard this before. I see a lot of head shaking. You know it. So the Jew had a great advantage because he had been entrusted with the word of God and yet with many of them had been raised with the teaching of scriptures in their synagogue. They claimed to be Jewish, but most of them no longer follow the religious aspect of Judaism. Why? Are they not God's chosen people? They had every advantage there. Just like today, we think of the same thing. We sit here in church and we claim to know Jesus Christ and we claim to say that when we walk out of these doors, we're ready to spread the gospel. But like me, and I'm sure you, you've experienced situations where you've let that opportunity go. Not because, again, you were not knowledgeable enough, because you didn't fully put your trust in God and knowing that it's not what I'm going to say or what you're going to say. It's what God's going to do through you. People ask all the time, why do bad situations happen to me? Why do I go through situations that uh, should not be happening to God's people? And I will say, and we know the biblical answer to that. It's God testing us, Right? It's God allowing us an opportunity to allow him to work through us. Sometimes it's through a tragedy. Sometimes it's through a sickness. Sometimes it's through uh, circumstances that are just unbearable to even think of. And then they happen. But if we don't get past that sin nature that we have, God cannot work that through us. And that's the same thing that happened to the Jews here. 
One Jewish man said, I believe Judaism allows you to connect with people, gives you an automatic community to fall back on, and teaches family and friend values. In other words, his faith was completely social. How often do we approach faith as social? I mean, we're, we're Baptists, are we not? Do we not like our potlucks? I do. I do. Sometimes too much. But that's what he's trying to say here. It, this is not a social club. This is an opportunity for us to do something for the kingdom of God. This is an opportunity for all of us to get involved. All of us Amen. to get involved. Take a look around. Look at the empty pews this morning. I know they're going to get mad that I said this online. As I say that, my family's not here, you know, so that's, go figure, right? We're missing opportunities, and it's evident as I look around. Not at you, but that space next to you. We have opportunity. We cannot let them pass. One of Aesop's fables says, One day a dog was walking along with his bone in his mouth. But as he was walking across a bridge, he happened to look down in the water, and he saw his own reflection. Thinking it was another dog with another bone, he began to bark, dropping his bone into the water and losing it. And so many of the Jews have gained the world, but have lost their soul in the process. The righteousness of God. But then Paul expands on the idea of sin and he applies it to all of us. Verse 5, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported as some affirm that we say. Their condemnation is just. He begins with that absurd statement when he says, if my wicked behavior actually demonstrates how God is, why should he punish me? Why should God punish our sin? I'm doing him a favor. If my bad can bring out something good, doesn't that justify that behavior? As one put it, if our unrighteousness causes the righteousness of God to shine more gloriously, how can God visit us with wrath? Or to put it simply, if my being bad makes good look good, what's the problem? Paul is using this argument to build this case for the sinfulness of sin, and he's using the absurd position of someone trying to justify themselves in order to prove we're all in the same boat and our sinfulness actually highlights God's perfection. So why is he so upset? But listen, neither my sinfulness nor your sinfulness does anything to glorify God. It does not. 
God is perfect, and in his perfection, he doesn't need me, and he doesn't need anyone else to prove how good he is. And man's sin only serves to demonstrate how far from that line we actually are. It, it shows how far short we are to the holiness of God. Sin demonstrates our minds. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So we aren't just bad. We are desperately wicked. That's a bold statement. That's a bold statement. Second, sin also dominates our will. Further on in Jeremiah, Moreover, Jeremiah said to all the people and to all the women, Hear the word of the Lord, all Judah who are in the land of Egypt. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, You are your wives, have spoken with your mouths and fulfilled with your hands, saying, We will surely keep our vows that we have made, to burn incense to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her. In other words, they were saying, We're going to do whatever it is we want, when we want, how we want, however we want. This is a perfect demonstration of how sin dominates not only how we think, but also what we do. Sin even dominates our affections of the things that we love. That's why John had to say, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Because it's so easy for our hearts and minds to be dominated by sin. John 3.19 The light that came into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. It is so common today to see people doing things in public that previous generations wouldn't even think of. From the gay parades to the talk shows that glorify perversion, people are no longer content to sin privately. Now they feel it's their job and responsibility to make it public for everyone to see. That's how deep this perversion has come. The reason for this is simple. They think if everyone is doing it, or if we do it in public, then it can't be all that bad. See, what they're really doing is seeking approval for that sin. So today we think, am I really that bad? If you haven't said this, you've probably already thought it, and with good reason. You can always find someone worse than you, and they can make your sin seem like peanuts in comparison. We do that sometimes, don't we? My situation's not so great, but look at this person. We justify our sin. And that's part of our sinful nature. It doesn't make you a horrible person. It just, it just shows that without God, the perversion runs rampant. The sin will always run rampant when he's not put first. So today we think, am I really that bad? If you haven't said that already, you will. Because it's part of us, unfortunately. It is part of our nature. But the idea here is God is saying that I can take away all of that. 
I can give you a life that is fulfilling. God gave us life for a reason, not to punish us, not to give us a set of rules so that we can't live life to the fullest. This is God's gift to us. And we've said this many times before, I know pastor has. God gave us this life, but our gift to God is the life we live for him. And that's what we need to do. Sin rules our hearts. And those who die in childbirth, heart disease, cancer, murder, accidents, old age, or whatever, they all die victims of sin. Everyone does. For the wages of sin is death. And we've all been infected with the virus of sin. And eventually it will kill us all. Every broken marriage, every disrupted home, every shattered friendship, every argument, every disagreement, every pain, every tear can be attributed to sin. In fact, in Joshua 7 verse 13, it's called the accursed thing. And then in 2 Corinthians 7 1, the Apostle Paul calls it the filthiness of the flesh and spirit. The Bible presents a horrific picture of the manifestation and devastation of sin. Sin is idolatry, rebellion, missing the mark, straying from the path, treachery, lust, ungodliness, wickedness. Sin lusts, it perverts, and it breaks the law. Sin is overstepping a boundary. It's a failure to reach it. It's a transgression and a shortcoming. Genesis 4, 7 says, Sin is like a beast crouching at the door. Sinners are not merely sick or morally weak, but we are, as Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5 says, fallen, dead in our sins and trespasses. Paul utters a scathing indictment against us. Did you know that Jesse James, the bank robber, and his gang committed 26 holdups where they stole about $200,000. That's chunk change now, but back then that was a lot of money. And he killed at least 17 men. Many of them were killed by his own hand. Now, Jesse James, if you don't know, was one of the West's most notorious outlaws. And yet very few people know this, but Jesse James... His father was a Baptist minister. And Jesse himself also considered himself a very devout Baptist. He was married, and he and his wife had two boys. I'm starting to see a connection here. I have two boys. I'm married. My middle name is James. I'm a Baptist minister. Makes you wonder. Everybody go out that door today, okay? But shortly after Jesse had killed a man in a bank robbery, he was baptized at a Kearney Baptist church in Kearney, Missouri. Bet you didn't know that. Then during a robbery, he killed another man, a bank cashier, after which he went home and joined the choir, where eventually he became the choir director and taught the people of the church how to sing. They said Jesse loved to go to church, but he couldn't always be there sometimes because he had to catch a train. <laughs> now listen, he was the classic example of someone who had all the right moves, but all the wrong motives. 
And like most sinners, he probably thought of himself as a pretty good guy. I go to church. I sing. I lead. It's not enough, is it? There's only one person who ever entered this world and passed through it unscathed without any stain of sin. And that was Jesus Christ. This is an indictment of all mankind. And in legal terms, an indictment is a formal written charge and every indictment must have at least one count or one specific charge to it. The more serious the crime, the more counts to the indictment. Paul follows this pattern by quoting from a series of Old Testament passages which demonstrate and no less than 14 counts how perverse and depraved the people of this world are. This, this was back in the time of Christ. This is how perverse they were. It's no different than today. It's the same. This section of the scriptural description and demonstration of why all men are condemned, both Jew and Gentiles. Nobody's excused from this. But the big question is, are there any exceptions? Paul answers in verses 10, 11, and 12 with a barrage of negatives. There is none, not even one, no one. None, none, not even one. What we have in verses 10 through 18 is a statement of total depravity. This doesn't mean that man is depraved as he can be. And that's pretty evident because it seems to get worse and worse every day, amen? We're far from what we could be. But it's scary to think we could go even further. But that's just because we have a sinful nature. It is in our nature. Those who do not know Christ can't even begin to think about why their behavior is the way it is. It's just the way they were made. It's the way I was born. It's in my genes. Total depravity means there is nothing in us that would commend us to a holy and righteous God. We don't measure our depravity by comparing ourselves to other people, but we compare it against God's holiness. After all, you can always find someone who is worse than you. It's really easy. And I'm sure we've all done things for others, and some of us might even have received an award or two. But compared to God, we all fall short. A Russian poet once said, I don't know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like. And it is terrible. Someone once wrote to Dear Abby. Some of you are familiar with that. Remember in the newspaper? People would write into Dear Abby, and she would give a response. Well, this one writer said, Dear Abby, I'm a 44-year-old woman and like to meet a man with no bad habits. She had a three-word response to this writer. She wrote, so would I. (laughs) None of us are perfect. God's standard of righteousness is the righteousness that he alone possesses. And this was demonstrated by Jesus Christ. That's why he would say in Matthew chapter 5, Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The righteousness that is demanded by God must be given by God. 
The sum and force of Paul's argument is this. Everyone has sinned and none of us has the right to claim to any of God's blessings. We don't deserve what we have. We deserve to be punished. We deserve God's wrath. The Jew and the Gentile are equal in this. They're both lost and both are in need of salvation. Like I said, there are many seats here with individuals who need Jesus Christ. Desperately need to know about salvation. Desperately need to know that even though I'm a Christian, I'm a sinner as well. I'm no different than you. But the difference is that God can work through me to his glory. And that's what people need to come to know. Verse 10, there is none righteous. The word none means absolutely zero. There could never be even one. So to emphasize it, he says not even one. So God is looking down from heaven to see if there is anyone who wanted a personal relationship with him, but he could not find one soul. I have met a few people in churches who gave me the impression that they had been saved, but for the life of me, they couldn't remember any specific sin in their life. But they could certainly see not only mine, and they saw everybody else's. We try to live for the Lord. And we do the best that we can, but we fall short. It's like washing hands with the strong soap and the hottest water. But then if I examine my hands under a microscope, it's amazing how, the, how much dirt and bacteria are still there. My life can seem so clean and pure compared to others, but God says I'm not to compare myself to others. I compare myself to him. Verse 12, they have all gone out of the way. It is easy to say, oh, we're not that bad, but the Bible says they are together become unprofitable. Or as the Hebrew says, they are putrid. God sees the whole of mankind as people who are dead and piled together in putrefying heaps. That's a pretty picture. This is the state of mankind. We are both infected and infectious. There is none that does good. Since none of us are righteousness or in righteousness, then none of us has any right to stand before God and tell him how good we are. If you told that to somebody, they'd probably laugh in your face, especially those who know you well. They'd laugh at you. You see, I think this is describing those who will say anything to anyone regardless of whether it hurts their feelings or destroys their reputation. I've heard people not just in church, but many other places, say things like, I really don't want to say anything, but I think you need to hear this. Already in your mind, you're thinking, I don't want to hear it. If you preface something by saying, uh, you're not going to want to hear this. You're right. I don't want to hear it. But that's the nature of sin. We don't want to sin, but it looks so appealing at times that we just fall into it. God knows this. That's why he sent his son. He had a plan for all of this. All he's asking is for our trust. 
our belief in him. You know, most of the work is not done by us. It's him through us. We've got a lot of lazy Christians. I was one of them. We're not... (laughs) None of us are unceptable to it. We have to get away from that sin. There's a man who was bitten by a dog, another dog story, which was later discovered to be rabid. He was rushed to the hospital where tests revealed that he had contracted rabies. At this particular time, medical science had no solution for his problem. And the doctor faced the difficult situation of telling him his condition and informing him what he had was incurable, that it was terminal. Sir, he said, we will do all we can to make you comfortable, but we cannot give you any false hope. There's nothing we really can do. My best advice is to put your affairs in order as soon as possible. The dying man sank into his bed in depression and shock, but then he rallied enough to ask for a pen and some paper, and he began to write with great energy. An hour later, when the doctor returned, the man was still writing vigorously, and the doctor said to him, Well, I'm glad you've taken my advice. You must be working on your will. The man said, This ain't no will, doc. This is a list of people I'm going to bite before I die. (laughs) And that is what we call resentment and bitterness. And those are the things that drive us sometimes. It will turn us into an angry, bitter person. We tend to think this is overstating the case, but not too long ago, when we had World War II and the Holocaust, the place called Auschwitz where over a million Jews were killed, they had shower rooms where the Jewish people would be sent to get clean, but there they were put to death like you know. And I don't need to go and do an explanation. But many of those that were killed also had been starved and sad to say, but it was many of their torturers actually enjoyed what they were doing. Same with the situation in Ukraine. They're enjoying what they're doing because it's led by evil people. And their goal is to not necessarily do the evil deed. It's to scare us enough to do nothing about it. That's what sin does. It cripples us. It makes us fearful. It makes us lazy. It makes us not want to do anything. Look what COVID did. And is still doing. It's a real thing. Yes, it is. But it crippled a lot of us. Fear of not knowing. Fear of what if I catch it? What if I, you know, this and that? And we had all those questions. And some of us went through it and we didn't fare so well. Some of us did. So it was a question of, well, this, 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 and that. That's what sin does. It makes us question everything. Is my relationship to Jesus Christ really worth it? I'm already saved, so do I really need to live the lifestyle? The strange thing in relation to what I just told you about World War II, 
They had a room where eyeglasses were stacked 20 feet high and another with piles of human hair. The hair was used to make rugs and people paid dearly for them in Germany at the time. There was another room where gold from people's teeth were melted down and sent to the factory where they made jewelry. Are we disgusted yet? The strange thing is the people who were guards were very ordinary people. And I'm sure many of them had joined the army to get a paycheck while they led people to those gas ovens and collected all the glasses and the teeth and the hair. Before the war, those people probably had other kinds of menial jobs because the economy was so bad. They did what they did to get by. And then after the war, they all went back and did whatever it was that they did before. They were ordinary people who had done horrific things, but when the war was over, they simply forgot about what they actually did and the horrendous things that took place. That's how we justify sin. We try to move on while the problem is still there. We put band-aids over things. These people who had no fear of God, they had no fear of God. Or else they wouldn't have done what they did. At least that's what I hope. So this morning, Paul has been laying out his case like a lawyer. The charge for all of us is we are all under sin. The indictment is the list of sins that we've committed. We don't have all day, and I don't have a long enough paper. And we all know the verdict. We're guilty. We're guilty. And we'll go into that another time as we go through. I'm going to leave you with this. In the early 20th century, a major newspaper invited several famous authors to respond to the question, what is wrong with the world today? G.K. Chesterton's response was far the shortest, by far the shortest, and his reply was, dear sir, I am. He claimed to be the problem. And that's truth. We are the problem. You want to know what the problem with sin is? We're the problem. Because we don't deal with it. We don't allow God to deal with that sin. We fall back into that sinful nature. We don't allow God to do what he does best. And that's be himself. And work through us. So that we can work past that sin and do what we've been charged to do here on earth. That's to be like Christ. Spread the gospel. Save as many as we can. It's, it's the analogy of, you know, people on a sinking ship. You try to get as many as you can off that ship before it goes down. We do the work of God. We keep the faith. We recognize our sin. We confess that sin. And we trust in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Stand together with me as David will come and give our benediction this morning. Oh soul, are you weary and
Father, thank you for our time here this morning. I pray that as we go out into the world and you present those opportunities to us, Lord, to minister to those who desperately need Christ, I pray we run through those opportunities and that we take them on, not because we're not able to do it, Lord, but through you we can do this. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. And Lord, thank you that we have a place to call our own, that we can worship you, give you praise, and we're freely able to do so. Thank you, Lord, for this day. To you goes the glory. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Have a great day in the Lord today. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.